This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 8th, 2023. I'm Scott Lundebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we just have a potpourri of topics. We're going to try and get through a bunch of these, but we might cut some for time. We're going to talk housing, social media, federal budget, probably David Johnston, maybe wildfires, maybe the Pacific Buffet, if we're really just like burning through everything and we want to express our like hot takes on BC ferries, food. <laughs> and budgetary losses, but we'll see what we get through. <sighs> Support the show, patreon.com slash politicoast. Maybe in the future we'll do bonus content where we have extended uh episodes going into hot takes on BC Fairies food and other like BC niche topics. Are we trying to like upsell the whole Patreon thing, not like drive people away from it? Uh, have you talked to the people in our Slack? This is what <laughs> that is a fair point. This is what they're here for, Scott. Let's start here in BC, as always, not much happening these days. Uh, the the quote-unquote news of the week was the order and council relating to the housing list that we talked about last week, the quote-unquote naughty list, province didn't frame it that, uh, came out. And there was actually more municipalities named on the order and council than Ravi Colon had announced with the initial 10. 47 total municipalities have been named at, in the order and council, which the media has now called them all on the naughty list. <laughs> yeah, this was kind of weird to see. Like, normally, when a government teases an announcement, they don't just let it all slip out in an order and council, like, months before they're going to make the uh, next announcement. But I don't know, I guess they were feeling lazy and just like, eh, do we really want to write this up a second time with a different 10 uh, cities on it? So they didn't. Yeah, the the procedural background here is the Housing Supply Act, I believe it was called, that they passed late 2022, allowed the province to, by regulation, or what's called an order in council, a little paper that the government cabinet signs off on and puts into regulatory law, um, they can use that to name cities and municipalities that the housing minister can then set targets for. And so they said, we're going to set targets for these 10 specific municipalities that we talked about. But in reality, they just named 47 of the, I think there's 160 odd, a little bit more than that. I used to know this number off by heart for other reasons, uh, municipalities in BC. And so 47 have been named in the order and council as essentially possible targets will be set for them. And we've named 10. They've said they're going to do 8 to 10 more later this year. Uh, and basically, this full list to me just is, here are all the municipalities that the government thinks is worth keeping an eye on in terms of housing, and that might need encouragement in the future. Basically, because of like, when we go through the list, we're not going to read them all. But I think it's because of just like, it's obvious there, that's where people are moving to. Yeah, and also like fills in all of the like weird thing 
places that didn't get a mention on the first one that are like obviously major municipalities in regions with housing supply shortages like Burnaby and Richmond and how uh, that Saanich was on the first one. Yeah, places. Oh, no, it was actually. Uh, but places like that that are like obviously need to be part of the focus if you're going to be doing a re regional strategy. Yeah. So this this list is basically everything in Metro Vancouver plus Abbotsford and Chilliwack uh, and Mission is Mission in. I don't even know anymore. I'm tired. Mission's on the list. Yeah. Well, is Mission in Metro Van? I forget where the line gets drawn. People are going to. I think it's Fraser Valley. Yeah. Uh, as well as the Capital Regional District, and then a few just outside, like Duncan, Nanaimo, and Lanceville, uh, Kelowna, and West Kelowna on there, uh, and Prince George as kind of the only town or city in northern BC to make the list, as far as I can tell. So yeah, uh, it's, if you're in many of those municipalities, you may see targets in the future, but you know, Prince Rupert didn't get on the list uh, I looked it up, the average single-family home, which is the average home price in Prince Rupert is $470,000, so it may not be as priority in terms of affordability compared to Metrovan, where it's like $1.5 for the equivalent. So yeah, mostly this story was weird because of how it came out in that reporters were like, we uncovered the secret list, and it's like, you were smart enough to look on the publicly available documents so credit you know like it i didn't do it so good good for them yeah i mean that's the most interesting thing about this isn't the list it's just that we actually have it because i mean no government in canada is particularly transparent so it's kind of weird they're telling us more than they have to which like is not great as like a baseline thing but like is notable i guess yeah, and I think the other thing that people pointed out that didn't get flagged in here is that like Squamish is on this list, but uh, Resort Municipality of Whistler is possibly the biggest missing one, and perhaps uh, the Sunshine Coast as well isn't on here, like Gibsons um, and Seashell. But yeah, Whistler is definitely in the midst of a housing crisis, but uh, they're they're fine for now, I guess, according to the province or. And, I, and of course, cabinet could always amend this and add more, but I guess they only wanted to do this once and now it's all in the housing ministry's department to deal with and set the targets. So that's the real story that we're waiting for is what are the targets. Moving from provincial politics to federal politics and I guess social media, there's no real good segue here. Um, but let's talk about Meta and Facebook, Instagram. What is this? Bill C18. C18, I believe it is. It's, a, it's been a messy week. So Meta announced that they are going to start blocking news content for about 5% of their users. They're going to try a number of different methods uh, for Instagram, Facebook, for different uh, devices, uh, different ways of blocking maybe... You just won't see it. Maybe it'll tell you if you try to post a news link. Uh, sorry, you can't do that in Canada. Uh, news publishers may be able to post things, but then they just won't get shown to Canadian users. And all of this is in response to Bill C-18, which is the link tax, which is a mandatory tax on 
social media platforms that serve news content to pay for news content. Yeah, so this is hardly uninspected. I mean, Meta Base and Drudel too, I believe, uh, have both said that they are likely to do this if Bill C-18 passed, Bill C-18 passed. So I mean, not exactly coming out of left field on this one. And I mean, it, it made sense, right? Like if the government puts in a new requirement, that's going to cost the company money. Like the co- company's going to respond and do the obvious thing of like reducing costs. And this kind of goes to, I think, kind of the fundamental problem with C-18 is it is the implication that this is something that the media or social media companies are kind of taking advantage of the media, uh, like primary media for letting their content be shared on them, which is not obviously the case. And the fact that uh, this drew a big outcry from the various media companies that up until the moment C-18 passed were saying, oh, this is terrible that our content's being shared on all of these platforms. And now that it isn't being shared, there's a problem. There is a big disconnect in all of this. Yeah, news newspapers joined these social media pages eagerly when they launched as a way to promote their content and drive readership. And now they're demanding money for that. And it's it's a weird bill. It seems like it's driven largely by the larger news industry lobbying. And it's kind of a mess. Like there's definitely an issue with the funding of the media in Canada. And we've talked about that a little bit in the past. And we did their interview with open media last year that we can, you know, you can go back and see part of that. Um, Although I think that was on the other online bill, the CRTC one, because it's hard to keep up with what the liberals are trying to do with the internet. Um, and yeah, it's such a mess. So like, on the one hand, I Facebook without news might be better, honestly. I mean, the, the, their product's been going downhill for a while. Like, Whenever I open up the mobile app, it is just like 90%. Oh, you should check out or we think you like this thing that is just complete garbage that I have no interest in. Like, their algorithms are like no noticeably worse and the user experience has gone downhill if it was actually news stories about things i cared about that would be a bit of a different story but uh I, yeah i think they've been yes toning down news for quite i think they have been toning down news for a while right i maybe because i don't see many news stories posted or shared on facebook maybe i'm already in this trial group um well i think they started like de- uh downgrading some of that stuff after 2016 mm. And um, they may have just picked up speed since. Also, I don't use Facebook that often, so like, who knows? Yeah. Um. But, but the certainly back to your original point, like, I don't necessarily think that at least my experience is better off if I don't see it on there. Well, and it's kind of a different issue, right? That I'm thinking of is just the like talk, and it's not like directly related to news, but just the way engagement with current affairs has gone on Facebook and just that like radicalization and and this is happens a lot more just with like Facebook groups and the way uh groupthink tends to happen on social media and you know this was a big thing on Twitter with just the um uh, 
reward system for being the most obnoxious that is so much of social media. Like there were stories a couple of years ago of how the algorithm on Facebook was prioritizing angry reacts over anything else, over other kinds of reacts. Right, because those correlated with people engaging more and spending more time on the platform. Mm-hmm. And so, and that just drives like negative feedback loops in terms of how people engage in society. But all of that is like a separate issue than how do people get news and how do we pay for the news? Um, but here we've just decided big tech needs to pay for the news and we need to do it not through attacks, but through mandatory, um, negotiations. So this, like I said, at start, I mean, this was an obvious response to how it went. And I mean, the government's acting all shocked and appalled by it, but anyone with a little bit of brain power to tell you this was a likely outcome of it. And it was a known problem going into uh, the whole Bill C-18 thing. And I mean, at the end of the day, th- that bill looks like it's more about uh, kind of like the incumbent media players trying to, uh, um, what's the term I'm trying to think of? Capture the regulators and am... none. <laughs> no, it's like, um, yeah, it's more, it's almost like more about the incumbent media players trying to like shake down uh you know the big new guys entering the field uh and using the government to do it than like any actual like seriously well thought out way of like how social media and traditional media should like interact absolutely because these bills don't help little podcast startups like us even some of the existing things that are a little bit more flexible are still just beyond our reach because we don't have two staff already. And so there is a real bias towards the established players in pretty much everything we've done for bolstering the media in this country, which is a shame. Yeah. And it's like not even clear that um, linking or that having content be shared on social media is detrimental to. No, it's probably helpful. uh, And media. Yeah, in fact, the fact that they paid people and had staff people whose job it was was to go on these sites and post the content. I mean, that tells me that uh, all of these companies think that it's a positive thing that is worth incurring a cost in order to have your content shared on this stuff. Um, so then to turn around and say, like, no, we actually need to be compensated for the thing we are paying our staff to do, like, makes no sense. And honestly, it's, like, mo- most disappointing or even additionally disappointing that this is the only, like, option we have on the table right now in terms of policy and the debate in Canada. Like, the NDP are like, this is fine. The block, I, I don't know what the block's position on this one is, but I know they supported C11. Uh, the Conservatives are against this, but I don't know what their alternative is. I'm not sure if they have an alternative, but I mean, at this point, just being honest about not having an alternative seems almost preferable to uh, pretending to have a solution that isn't one. Because like, no, nobody has trapped, whether it's in Canada or elsewhere, like the how do you actually have a like good business case for news media and a good business model? 
So like it, it does seem to be one of these like intractable business problems of the current age. But nobody's figured it out yet. We like it would be good if the government didn't pretend it had solved that. Or like take umbrage at like the very obvious end result of it of companies say uh if they're being told they have to suddenly pay for something that uh like let's face it they have no control over whether or not people go on their site and like want to share this particular link or not they can only close it down which is now what they're doing so it's it all made sense it's all a thing that uh that anyone should have expected these to do and like the fact that the government was seemed unaware or shocked or outraged by this i don't think bodes doesn't say great things about their general competency or self-awareness on a lot of this stuff and yeah just general problem with trying to like, like honestly plan a lot of things. the best approach i could see to a lot of this and this could be taken easily by a version of a conservative party or a progressive party is an antitrust approach is one that says, look, market domination has in both the media side and the tech side has made things worse for consumers, for users. So if we break up post media, we break up a lot of this media consolidation and the fact that every city's paper is basically owned by the same company and we do what we can to require, uh, meta and facebook to operate as separate companies in canada as much as we can do that i don't think that's actually going to like really solve the problem though because fundamentally the issue is that you can't generate enough revenue from the content that is made to cover the cost of producing it plus all of the overhead and everything else that's undermined and though by the fact there are changing a small but growing number of startups out there there's a few like independent uh publishers um who are covering it, things in halifax in calgary and elsewhere and they're struggling to get the like you it, know broad reach of, of uh the calgary herald or whatever yeah but like that struggling's kind of the point is like they also haven't figured it out well and like they're coasting along or kind of keeping their head above waterfall for right now, but it's not necessarily clear that they're going to be sustainable in the long run on that. And being small operations, they're going to have some, they're not going to be able to get like the economies of scale with like having say one HR office or one payroll department to cover every newspaper, you know, every city's local newspaper that can just be run out of a central office or something. So Figuring out all of this stuff is it's not necessarily obvious that having a bunch of small companies is going to be a more economically successful model than having a few big ones on that when there's just a problem where it's just hard to generate sufficient revenues to cover the cost of paying a bunch of reporters to go out and do the work of reporting and then translating that into a some form of content that's consumable by the general public, whether that be uh, television, internet video. One of the revenue streams they do have is advertising. And what the government has said in response to Facebook and Google's announcements that they might pull their news or are starting to 
is we'll take our 11 million of dollars of ads that we're putting into social media and put it elsewhere maybe back in the print newspapers where no one will see it <laughs> yeah i don't think uh Google or Facebook, these like multi-billion dollar companies that just rake in massive amounts of money are necessarily going to be afraid of $11 million of lost advertising revenue, particularly when like this new sharing thing that our revenue sharing part of uh, Bill C-18 was almost certainly going to cost them more than $11 million. Like This seems like a small cost yeah, to do in business. Uh, the today. government has hinted they might have other options. But uh, I struggle to see them affecting anything other than like the death of social media news, which again, mixed feelings on, but is like not the point of what we're going for here. So the story's so stupid. I hate it so much. Yeah. Honestly, like the government should never gone ahead with C eighteen, like and avoided all of this mess. <sighs> Anything else? No, just everyone <laughs> involved in this sucks. Oh, should feel well, bad. things that shouldn't have gone ahead was the death of a suite of affordable housing recommendations in Calgary. And we don't... Yeah, I, I was trying to, to uh, do the segue. It's a tough segue. We're going to talk a little bit of municipal politics for now, but in Calgary, but it ties into federal and we'll get there in a sec. So stay with us, dear listeners. This is not a... Calgary report or what's where's Main Street report? I forget where Calgary City Hall. I know it's downtown. I don't know what street it's on. Calgary Council had an affordable housing recommendations come forward to City Council. They came forward as a block of recommendations, and Mayor Jody Gondek opted to put them all to Council as one single package rather than uh, have it broken up and do a line by line vote, which probably would have gotten most of it through without contention. And Tuesday evening, council struggles with this and ultimately votes it down eight to seven with suburban, more small C conservative uh, councillors not liking some parts of it, particularly that hinted that Calgary might need wide scale upzoning reform, something that actually Edmonton has been going ahead with. Uh, and like the city of Vancouver is looking at with the Vancouver plan, and the province of BC is looking at making the case everywhere, kind of stuff we talk about a lot. Um, that got a lot of people pissed off uh, because it was largely driven by NIMBY feelings of like, sure, you might want, and these are like comments from councillors, like you might want row houses downtown, but I, I don't know if people in my uh ward will want that in you know beside their single family homes and it's like yep that's that's nimbyism right there the most interesting outrage though came from local member of parliament michelle rumpel garner as well as the conservative party's housing critic uh, scott Hson, who's a ontario mp who both called them out on twitter and i'm I'm reading between the lines and kind of assuming based on some other chatter I've heard that there was also private pushback on these counselors to, hey, smarten the fuck up because the federal conservatives are yimbies now. <sighs> and they did a vote for reconsideration and actually uh, turned around their no vote into a yes, not making it like a full endorsement, but it sounds like they've 
put it to further consultation at least. Yeah, so there's apparently going to be a public hearing later in the year. Um, So, like, it's not that they fully just accepted these and went ahead, but uh, it's at least back on the table. Yeah, we've seen federal MPs involve themselves in municipal politics from time to time, not too frequently. You know, most notably locally, Don Davies a couple years ago showed up at a public hearing for uh, housing development in East Van and complained of that and complained about it <laughs> yeah that was um like a then it was a six maybe eight story rental building on phrase like exactly the type of housing vancouver needs to be building and he had this weird thing about like how he wasn't allowed to build a deck on his house anyway super weird way weirder than this um this actually seems like positive uh weighing in by yeah, we're we're all MPs. for MPs getting out of or you know politicians leaving their lane when it's uh, suits our purposes. <laughs> no, <laughs> wasn't quite the takeaway on that. But yeah, um, I mean it does fit in the general message bots that the uh, conservatives have been pushing hard for the last couple of years. Um, you know, it's now the uh, conservative party position that they are going to be withholding federal funding from cities that have housing shortages and aren't going doing the work of actually updating their rules to allow housing to be built. So yeah, it makes perfect sense that they took a look at this and was like, nope, don't like that at all. This is a clear example of the thing we've been talking about for several years well, it's now. Quite notable as well, right? Because the city of Calgary is kind of like the capital of conservative Canada. And so if I mean, it's like the one yeah, urban area that's still we're not counting blue. like Saskatoon and um, Regina. <laughs> There's a Apologies to our Saskatchewan listener, <laughs> singular. Uh, I haven't looked at our demos <laughs> recently. But yeah, so probably have to, you know, maintain the persona that the Conservative Party is moving towards on housing really needed this alignment, I think. and. No, yeah. I'm not sure he needed it, but, you know, is it a good... Yeah, it was a good opportunity. And so, yeah, <laughs> there you have it. The internal politics of conservative movement is so fascinating, right? It, municipal parties in Canada, even where we have municipal parties and municipal politicians other or otherwise independent, are generally not affiliated with their provincial and federal political parties officially, but there's always that, like... You kind of know who's with, wit or sympathetic to which party, or possibly even holds a membership card. And in situations like this, you can really see it come through that, like, well, the mayor of Calgary is not a conservative. Uh, there are definitely conservatives on that council, and uh, they got yelled at, and that can affect a couple of them at least. And that's all it took to uh, align the, I guess progressive downtown Calgary council with the soft yimbies in the conservative suburbs. But that wasn't the only uh, thing the conservatives were up to this week. Pierre Polyev uh, huffed a lot of air and he puffed uh, and he threatened to blow the budget down as he put forward a number, a couple demands that the federal liberals would have to meet or else he would do everything he could to stop the budget from passing. Uh, he failed, spoiler alert. 
his demand specifically was to have the government present a plan to balance its budget, quote, to bring down inflation and interest rates. Uh, and he also wanted to see any future increases to the carbon price cancelled. He ended up, yeah, go for it. The, yeah. Like filibuster isn't a huge thing in our system. It's just one of these like annoying little bits of Americanisms that's like making its way into Canadian politics. Like, yeah, opposition parties have always used various procedural things to try to slow things down. But like giving a big speech about, or or announcement about how you're going to filibuster or something is, you know, really one of these annoying things where we're like trying to copy the Americans, even though we have a different system. Yeah, projects. like specifically what they did do is bring forward 900 amendments to the budget bill. And uh, Polyev also spoke for as long as he could. Uh, but time allocation had already been invocated uh, by the Liberals and NDP. So the debates were going to come to an end regardless. And they were able to move through the amendments proposed kind of in blocks of like clumping related ones together and just shooting them down one after the other so it slowed down debate um and you know what i do give some credit to the conservatives here i think this was like on the comm side a relatively successful endeavor they got a couple headlines out of this over a couple days i don't know if saying we need a balanced budget and no more carbon taxes is the hill that was worth fighting on it's on brand i mean I'm sure it'll make, yeah. I mean, this isn't the '90s anymore. Balanced budgets don't have the uh, political cachet they once did. I mean, I'm sure Andrew Coyne was happy about this, but uh, you know, him and five other people. But I, the net selection is not going to be won on whether or not the budget should be balanced. And yeah, there's a a reasonable argument that if we come out of a, a pretty difficult time. We took on a lot of debt to deal with the pandemic, which was the right call. But like now, now that we're in kind of better times or you know, getting into that, like now's the time to kind of square things up so that uh, when the next divergency rolls around, we're in the kind of pretty decent financial shape we entered into that uh crisis with and whatnot but like that's one of these like governing things that isn't necessarily going to make for good politics possibly the funniest part of this story came this morning when it was clear the vote was going to happen because the time allocation had come up and the vote happened this afternoon and reporters asked polyev what his plan was today and he said well I'm willing to work all summer to rewrite this budget so it balances and uh, brings down inflation and interest rates, sticking to his catchphrases. Um, so he kind of shifted from a, I will stop this, I will single-handedly stop this budget to I'm happy to work with the government on making this better, which they didn't take him up on. So, well, surprise, surprise. What a shock. But that kind of conciliatory tone is something i haven't seen from him before and you know i don't read it too sincerely but i do wonder how well he could play that if he really leaned into the i just want to you know put politics behind me and work to make canada better and to beat inflation and interest rates and balance the budgets and the liberals have no interest in that 
I mean, there are many people who can do the, I want to put politics aside and just focus on what's best for the country. But Pierre Polyev is not one of those people. No. <laughs> like, it, that's not a credible thing. Like, sometimes you have a brand, you just got to own it and work with what you've got. And that is where he is right now. And yeah, he absolutely should soften up a few things. But uh, no, that's just going that far. It's just going to be like weird and inauthentic and like nobody's going to believe it for a minute. Oh, actually, I lied. The funniest thing is that he voted remotely to against the budget in the end. He didn't even show up in the House to vote against it, which is fine and allowed. And the government is going to make permanent under a set of changes coming forward. That's how we do a segue, Scott. <laughs> Definitely better than the last one. <laughs> so yes, today, and I haven't seen the document because, and I've tried to dig for it, but uh, government House Leader Mark Holland unveiled a 25-page motion to amend the standing orders and overhaul them to permanently make uh, virtual hybrid sittings a feature of our House of Commons. Uh, this follows, you know, several years of this becoming standard practice based on the pandemic and a lot of temporary motions that got us through the pandemic and then were fought more and more about like, do we still need this? And the government and NDP leaning more towards the, it does increase accessibility in some ways. We need to do more to support translators' uh, hearing requirements and uh, safety, as we discussed on a previous pod. Uh, but overall, there is value to this in the eyes of the government, at least. I'm, I have to say I'm not a huge fan of uh, the idea of making the hybrid settings permanent. I do think there's some value of like actually having everybody in a room going through all of that stuff. Um, you know, the the meetings, the spontaneous meetings that like happen in the hallways and everything. Like these are kind of like important parts of the processing. Like you lose something when it's just one person talking to a uh, camera at a time on some like zoom call and like anyone's ever had to sit through a few different zoom or teams calls or something like nobody ever nobody everybody's ever had to done that knows that like they're never as like efficient even efficient right they're never like as fruitful or as good or like as just being in person in the same room as someone so yeah, like it, it may help with accessibility a little, but I think there is also something to be said for like everybody tracking down to Ottawa, do it, and just like getting together and like doing the actual work of legislating. Yeah, like I don't disagree with any of that, although I don't know if it, like, how valuable it is to be mandatory for everyone to be there for everything they do in the house. We already know people miss sittings and parts of sittings quite frequently because they're doing things in the back halls or they're off like leaders are off across the country doing all kinds of public appearances that aren't related to sitting in the parliament this in some ways does allow mps especially from farther out than ontario like i'm thinking of the mps from northern bc who have some of the longest commutes in the country to get to ottawa to be in their constituencies more and if 
we're going to have an electoral system, which we probably will forever, that has some level of regional representation, then allowing MPs to also be closer to home more. And, you know, every MP, I think, has made some effort to be in Ottawa at least once. I don't, you know, we could go through the record. It'd be really interesting to see if anyone has done all virtual appearances. Um, but maybe some of that is more up to the caucuses than parliament as a whole to kind of enforce and up to the voter to decide if they matter like if that matters to them like if you hear we we had this come up in not directly but in the what was it the 2015 election where michael ignatieff was pointed out by jack layton as 2011 kind of so long ago uh the leader who was like there for the fewest number of votes and Jack Layton was like, you don't even show up to work. We can bring that if like you don't show up in person to work, although remote work is becoming far more socially acceptable. So as long as they're voting, maybe that's all Canadians care about. I don't know. Like I'm not too plussed by the change, but I do think it's interesting to see the evolution of our democracy. Yeah, I don't know. It, to me, it feels like this is kind of like one more thing that's making parliament feel like an increasingly vestigial part of the uh this political system i mean here. i think the bigger issue is that like government bills kind of come to the floor of the legislature fait accompli whether we're in a minority or majority situation these and that's endemic to most legislatures in this country provincially and federally yeah for sure and, and like our abnormally strong uh level of party discipline definitely plays into that and everything so like yeah it wouldn't fix the problem but you know it's just like one you know one more straw that's being added to the camel's back on that front and i mean we haven't actually like you said we haven't seen the actual tets but you know i could definitely see the case that like at the very least you you'd want say ministers and like maybe question period shouldn't be done remote and like things like that were like you maybe want to put limits on kind of which people can do it remote like it's one thing for like a backbencher who's like not really participating in the debate to like watch it and vote and whatnot but like, you know if you're like the back and forth and the uh you know rhetorical jousting that happens there maybe you actually do want to have the key players in the in the room when that's all happening rather than on some grainy uh zoom screen regardless like the conservatives for the most part seem like they don't like it so i fully expect that the next time they take power it's gonna go back to how it was yeah this is one of those things that's hard to really read the sincerity of because conservatives in many ways are opposing it because the liberals are doing it um but if much of their caucus is from western canada it becomes convenient uh, to just like vote remotely as Polyev did earlier today and not having it's kind of like the liberals decried Stephen Harper's um, approach to the media and then when they got elected did the exact same thing yeah often more so uh, but got called, called out less for it uh, which I think is a valid criticism that we need to bring up more um, so yeah like the liberals are or the conservatives are criticizing the liberals for using this to duck accountability but if it becomes this thing that they can use to duck accountability i'm cynical enough to see them uh taking that uh 
I think it's really going to depend on when mm-hmm. in their term they actually get around to it. If they're updating the standing orders, like, you know, first month or whatever, yeah, it's going to go back. If this is something they get around to, like, month 17 or whatever, yeah, it's probably sticking around. And it also depends how soon the next election is, because if this sticks around for another two years or, you know, the liberals even win something after that, it becomes entrenched in many ways. And then it's just not like a live issue that they'll probably fight on. Um, the block for their part, Yves-Francois Blanchette, CTV reports that they're kind of mixed. Uh, they he, he was not a big fan of talking through the camera, but he's also like not fully against it. Um, and I think that's kind of where I sit, like, yeah, there's value to being there in person, but there's also like value or at least positives to uh, the flexibility as well. It's not a simple story, at least. And, you know, di- reasonable people can disagree, I think. Uh, also included in the Liberals' updates to the standing orders are some more minor changes, according to CTV, things that codify existing practices. Uh, decorum requirements, which I'm really curious for just like personal interest to see. I know we had the whole debate around uh, whether women had to cover their shoulders here in BC. Uh, Yeah, so it might be like update the dress code or something. Uh, You know, personally, I care very much about whether they'll still start every day with a prayer. I don't think they're touching that based on the Liberals' past statements. Um, But they may change how you can submit a petition and I know they have e-petitions, but maybe they can have more uh, reports done electronically, or maybe they're really putting all of that properly in standing orders, finally. Well, while we're in Parliament, the I think this was even the Procedures Committee today, but uh, the committees were hearing, uh, continuing hearings on foreign interference, and David Johnston was called before one of the committees, we don't have the stories on him in our show notes, but he, you know, he was in the news for more this week, which has not been good for him most of the time. No. Yeah. So he testified before parliament this week. Um, I don't think either of us watched the proceedings, but from the report I did see, it sounded like it didn't go super well. There's a few revelations came out of that. Like, for example, that, um, he never actually spoke with Han Dong uh, related to the uh, allegations against him uh, that he was reviewing. Uh, there was some indication that perhaps he hadn't seen all the uh, relevant intelligence information that later got sh- um, briefed to Aaron O'Toole, which we talked about uh, the other week, which might explain why there's some discrepancies between those two, uh, between his report and what uh, Aaron O'Toole was saying. And then there was a whole bunch of time just spent on whether or not uh, David Johnson was do- was the right person to do all of this. Yeah, very. Uh, I mean, it's parliamentary committee, so in many ways, it can get very performative, right? And so everyone's taking their shots, especially when they can do that in person. And that's not to say that's all pointless, but in terms of getting to the truth when you have a series of political actors all like vying for attention and power that can kind of undermine our ultimate goal. Um, but I like yeah, David Johnson, not a politician, clearly showing through. Yeah. And, and in fairness to Parliament, well, like 
almost all of when the majority of parliament votes to say, hey, we don't think this is the right guy to do this. When he then comes in front of you, like asking him about that does, and whether he actually took that, um, the you know, parliament, the expression of parliament's will on that one seriously makes sense as a, one of the topics to discuss. Uh, turns out he's fine ignoring that. And um, I believe his response was something along the lines of that uh, his mandate comes from the prime minister. So as long as the prime minister is happy with him, he's going to continue. I mean, he's technically right. Which, I mean, he's technically right. But at the same time, it does kind of make the whole special independent rapporteur thing seem a little um, more a case of branding than reality. Yeah. Which is like not great. Because, like, as we've mentioned a few times on past episodes, it's not Trudeau that you have to convince of this stuff. Uh, the Rosa questions raised uh, earlier this week related to uh, the lead counsel for David Johnson's rapporteuring investigation. Um, and this came from uh, a Globe and Mail story uh, that... Uh, Sheila Block, a Toronto lawyer, uh, had previously attended uh, Liberal Party fundraisers back in uh, at least 2001, as well as, uh, sorry, 2021, but has been donating uh, fairly consistently between 2006 and 2022, uh, and the election candidate record showing uh, that over those years, that totals up to about $7,594. That works out to about $475 a year, which yeah, not, so like, not, not, at the li- <laughs> not at the limit, but like more than most Canadians. Sure. Mo- most Canadians do zero. Yes. Um, so that just raised more questions about, um, yeah, just how separate and uh kind of nonpartisan this whole thing actually is i mean at this point i think david johnson's like credibility or at least uh perceived legitimacy on this stuff is kind of shot through and kind of dead at this point like this is only like just a more gasoline on that particular fire but uh it's not great and it's just going to uh add to that whole thing and I don't know, what, what strikes me about this is just how different this is compared to how it works when the U.S. appoints someone as like a special counsel or a special investigator um, for something. And in those cases, like they really pull in someone that like does not have a like partisan history with uh, the people that are under investigation and whatnot. And they really or the current government of the day. And it's, I don't know, just notable how that didn't seem to be a thing that was particularly concerning to anyone uh, when this appointment and this applicable staffing choices were made. Yeah, like, on its own, this story about the lawyer's donation and, like, and it was a Zoom webinar fundraiser in 2021 are, like, they're uncomfortable but I'm, I like struggle, if this was yeah, the first negative story about the whole thing, that would be a very different. Yeah, thing. like on its own, I wouldn't say it's damning. It doesn't help at this point. Um, like in many ways, like Canada is a much smaller place than the US. So there is just like an insular nature of 
prominent people who are relatively uh, qualified to work on these kinds of things, at least from the government's view. So, like, I can see how this happens, but that doesn't, like, justify it. And, yeah, like, go public inquiry just to, like, have us stop talking about David Puck and Johnston. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, at this point, that really seems like the inevitable little outcome, but uh, we'll see whether it actually happens. And, yeah, I guess the only other kind of related China news is that Sam Cooper, who was the journalist at Global News who broke many of these stories, uh, he's leaving Global News to start a substack. Conveniently, Ray is Global News is being sued for defamation by Handong. Because he's also named in lawsuits, like, that doesn't really get him out of that particular trouble. No, but I do, like, but if... Yeah, you do have to wonder yeah. how much that uh, played into the decision to part ways and how much of it was a uh, mutual decision. Yeah, and if, decision. if Global is trying to move towards a, like, deal with Dong, then dumping the lead journalist could be... But I'm, like, really speculating here, according to the official story... Cooper is leaving of his own accord. Uh, the Maple who broke this uh, do highlight at the end uh, some people pointing out that he had started his substack on February 23rd, about a month before one of his allegations about Dong broke, and that his independent, the Bureau News Inc., was incorporated on March 23rd, 2022. So, like, quite a while before a lot of this broke. So, he he has clearly been thinking about doing something independent for quite a while. Uh, there's nothing on his Substack as far as I know yet, but um, the timing the timing is going to raise questions, and uh, I guess we'll see what he does from the bureau. I think is what he's calling his new thing. But yeah, real hit for the reputation of Global at this point. And yeah, uh, the other story we had in here and. I'll leave it up to you if you want to talk about it, but Canada's on fire and that's bad. It's not great. Oh. <laughs> like, and it's really on fire. Like, more has burned yeah. this year than any year on record. And it's only mm. June. Yeah. And it's like swamping New York and uh, Toronto and everything. So, like, the, the places in, like, the American media ecosystem where, like, they're all headquartered are noticing it. So, like, it seems to have drawn way more attention this year than it normally does. Um... Yeah, it's bad. It sucks. The air quality has been not great the last couple of days here in Vancouver as well. I I honestly don't have much more to say beyond. I just miss when smoke season wasn't a regular thing. I mean, that's, yeah. Um, the thing that's getting me this year is just the, like, wild amount of conspiracy theories going on with this is the... and. We, you know, we found a tweet and it's in our Slack today that apparently re-elected Premier Daniel Smith is talking about starting a, or bringing in independent investigators to figure out, like, who's starting all these fires. Like, really leaning into the, these are deliberate acts of arson that are happening to, I don't know, give the left an advantage to push climate change stuff somehow. Like, it's deranged and unhinged and people should it's common sense to know that you could start a fire accidentally right oh yeah like it's been a that's what smoky I mean, the bear the first, is like, teaching us yeah i like the a lot of like the big fires of bc history being caused by people being careless 
and doing things that start fires. Like, yeah, but there is, I mean, we don't know the story of a lot of these fires right now, but like, there's a decent chance several of them were caused by human action um, in a very direct way, but like, doesn't that, that's not the same as deliberate. No. Yeah, so that's that's bad in terms of where the discourse is going, even at the highest like, levels of some political parties. Really seems par for the course of Daniel Smith. It's going to be a long four years. Or eight. <laughs> if she can make it to the next election, she'll be a modern record setter in Alberta history. Uh, anyway, climate change is real and really bad, and it would be great if politicians would do more about it um thankfully the federal government is saying despite their very pessimistic forecasts that say things are just getting started and are going to go very badly uh, they say they do have the resources to uh, support all the provinces in emergency reactions as they need them uh, they've already started deploying the canadian forces to a couple of the provinces including alberta that and nova scotia that really need help but like there's so many, so much more we need to be doing and focusing on. Um, we need denser cities so we're not building into the woodlands, I say as I, like, look at the forest right beside my home. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think the market may end up taking care of that pretty soon. Uh, might have been State Farm also. Anyway, one of the whatever the biggest U.S. insurer was just announced they're no longer going to be... Uh, doing wildfire insurance policies for California. So such if you own a home in California that's near near a, uh, the urban boundary where fires are a, a big risk. But uh, yeah, a lot of stuff's going to get uninsurable pretty quick, and that's going to have some pretty serious knock-on effects. And I'm just seeing this now come up in our Slack, but BC Hydro uh, just announced $50 rebates for portable high-efficiency window or portable air conditioners. So that's great to see. Like at this point, we had this whole discussion like post-heat dome about like the right to be cool. And, you know, you were struggling with this earlier today of just like how do you keep the air in your apartment breathable but also like let some fresh clean air in and or air that is cooler than just the natural resting state of my apartment this time of year and what did you do scott what did you have to do oh i end up like taping a couple furnace filters to my window uh i don't expect rebates to come through for that but like <laughs> we need to be thinking about like the fact smoke is going to be a frequent occurrence and heat is going to be uh much worse in canada than it's ever been and these are policy questions that like we're doing a little bit on but in terms of building codes this needs to get updated and so if you want your $50 ac unit discount i'll put the link in the show notes for you um grim very grim uh a great place to end the show i guess and that has been play Coast. find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>